Information Overload Research Group Podcast. Welcome. Let's all reduce information overload in our world. Thank you for listening. Welcome, everyone. This is the iORG podcast. My name is Emanuele Terenzani, and I am a no-email member of iORG. This is the first episode of the podcast. Uh, it's a new channel for iORG, um, and there's an opportunity, actually, for, for, for iORG and for everybody that is going to be guests here, to, and also for everybody like you that are listening to this, to, to share and learn about information overload, right? So you will learn a lot about what it is, um, how the, what are the solutions, right? How to tackle it and and also all the various experiences of our guests uh, and all around this argument. So uh, this podcast will actually host all the uh, best researchers, practitioners, students, passionate, uh, you know, even the victims of information overload. So bringing all the things that could be shared and learned so that we all can work to reduce it. Um, I was always thinking, oh, who could be the best one to start, right? Well, this is a new channel, so there should be a very exciting guest. And of course, I think that the most um, knowledgeable about all these topics around information overload cannot be more than our president of IORG, that is Nathan Zelda. So I'm really, um, I enjoyed a lot of the conversation with, with Nathan. He has a decade, more than a decade, actually, even 20 years of experience of information overload. He developed a lot of tools as well, right, to, to tackle it somehow. And he has a lot of stories, right? So he's currently an independent consultant and public speaker. He's still president of York, so he's still organizing and being part of you know, the core uh, steering committee of, of, the, of the organization. He lives in Jerusalem, um, and uh, he actually... Uh, has a lot to say about the information overload. So we started from the beginning in our conversation. We started from um, email, and when we first dis- discovered that there was something that you know was kind of not very positive for people that were working, that actually we defined and he called information overload. We touched as well, you know, what is the environment he was living in the past and the environment now. Uh, we discuss about you know artificial intelligence, about ethics, about the behavior of people, and how a change of behavior could you know change information overload. We we discussed a lot about the whys uh, that information of information overload and the whys of that information overload is bringing, like why somebody is spamming or why somebody is overloading other people. Uh, we discussed about trust and responsibility, and, and honestly, I was very surprised about this conversation. I I like the good turns it had, and I learned a lot about about it talking to Nathan. So I would like I wouldn't like to spoil you anything, right? It's a very very interesting episode. Hopefully, there will be more after this. So without further delays, I will leave you now with Nathan Zeldes. Enjoy. Welcome everybody, here I am with Nathan Zeldes. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. So this is actually the first of the iORG podcast, right? And uh, it's, it's, uh, I'm quite excited because it's the first new kind of channel that iORG is bringing into life. 
and the purpose here is mostly you know to to talk about the information overload from you know who is really fighting on the first line uh, to reduce it and uh, i i think nathan you are you should be the first to to be there because you are not only the you know the founder the father founder of uh, information overload research group but you have a lot to say as well about iorg for how how many years ago like a decade or two decades ago I think I started into it in 1994, so quite a bit. So it's quite a bit of a time, it's more more than two decades of uh, right. information overload fights. And, and and tell me when when is the so what what happened in 1994 or when is the first time you noticed that there that there was this uh, overload of information around us? So the thing is, uh, somewhere early in 1994. I was at Intel and I needed a new job there. And I created for myself the job that we called Computing Productivity Manager, which was a kind of little R&D group I set up to look at the ways people interact with computers and how to make it more productive and good for everyone. And just after I started into this job, I think the original trigger was a friend came to me and he said that he heard that the managers in one of our, our operations in Israel it was proclaiming that he will delete on site any email that has an attachment. So, you know, that seemed pretty weird. Now, email at the time was completely new at Intel. We just received it a few months earlier, and already uh, this was happening. And that gave me the, the indication that something was very wrong with our email and what we were doing with it. And I started interviewing managers and people to find out what was going on. And what I found was a total disaster which started me working on this subject and led to everything that came later. So I thought that email is for something that it um, derailed at a certain point, not that started already with the you know, wrong, wrong step. So why do you think that that was the, the case? Uh, well, uh, what I found in my research is a number of problems, but you know, one thing certainly people had no idea how to use it. I found one uh, manager who thought that if she wants to send a Word document as an attachment, she has to save each page separately and attach it separately. Okay, so, okay, so that, that was the level at which people were expert about what they were doing. But also I found that there are absolutely no norms, no expectations of what's okay or not okay to send, uh, who to send to, what distribution lists to use and so on. So there was no etiquette of any kind and people didn't know how to use the tools and various useful features that today we do have, we didn't even have at the time. For instance, uh, the email we used was CC mail, low to CC mail at the time. And uh, everything was modal uh, in the sense that if you opened an attachment, you couldn't do anything else until you closed it and then open the next one and then close that one and so on. But the system wasn't very efficient and the way people were using it was completely, they just didn't think it through what is or isn't productive. So, but basically, what I so you you are a, an an engineer, right? So yes. you you studied and you are quite IT competent in this. You are able not only to to use a computer but to create uh, devices and so on. So, uh, since you are you are understanding a lot of the, the you know, technical nuances of how the devices are working and software is working, so do you think it's this initial not knowing? Um, how to use email was because 
there was a not a good communication between the technical dudes who was creating the tools and who effectively started using them or uh, i think nobody thought it through you remember email came from from generally the, the academic side of the internet mm -hmm. and the academics have their own way of life and they have their own speed of doing things and uh, things are maybe different with them but i thought at some point i was trying to set up a system for what today you would call a unified inbox for receiving faxes uh, so that all the faxes coming to our communication room would get routed automatically to people's email mm -hmm. which involved a person sitting there seeing on screen what was the fax who it was for and then typing the name and sending it over and uh, i had some companies come and show me tools like that and it was very obvious that they were thinking on a completely different scale so uh, one of them comes in and shows me this uh, screen and he says, here are the faxes and he shows me like four little document icons and here are the users and he shows me like four little people icons. And he says, look at me, drag this cute icon and drop it on the cute user. And I said to him, you're crazy. I have a thousand faxes each day. I have 500 users. I don't want any of this, this graphic nonsense. I want the operator to sit with the fingers glued to the keyboard. There's no time even to go to the mouse and back. The fax pops up. You see what it is. You start typing the name. It auto-completes. You hit enter, and the next one is right there. So the, the gap between what the developers were thinking and the reality of a very busy company mm -hmm. was huge. And I think in email, maybe we had a similar problem, although I wouldn't blame the developers too much because, frankly, I think most of it was the behavioral side at that time. When it was 1994, what were the, on top of uh, avoiding any attachment, was there any anything, any particular action taken uh, since you realized that uh, there was an issue? Well, I took action. I started developing solutions. Okay. I brought in some technical add-ons to the application to make it faster to use, but mostly I brought up a, a program for achieving the required behavior change, which included training and presentations and group discussions. Uh, I can tell you more about it if you want, but uh, it worked quite well across the company. This evolved into something we called the Your Time program by the time it was corporate-wide. Mm -hmm. The way it worked is we had three components that every employee had to receive. And the first was a presentation of expectations of what's okay or not okay to do in this place, uh, like the way of, of life in the business, where we set up expectations for distributions and for how to write clear emails and so on. The other part was training in how to use the tools, so the, the actual features of the uh, email tools, which mm -hmm. has been found, uh, I've seen it later also in some research being done. People don't know even a fraction of the capabilities of even a tool like Gmail. Everybody uses it. It has dozens of extremely useful features to make your life easier. Nobody knows them. All they know is reply, and preferably reply to all. So that's a problem. And the third thing we wanted to do is have every group of people, like people that report to the same manager at the same level, hold a discussion where they essentially say, why are we doing this to each other? And how can we improve things in our group? And how can we define new standards in our group so that the communication flows better? And the trick in this program was we started at the very top of the organization. Mm -hmm. We did this for the senior manager and, and uh, his staff. And after they got these three components, each of them went to his or her staff 
and repeated the three components and so on all the way down like a waterfall. That was the way we tried to cover as much as possible of the company. And it worked. There were some uh, good results. And from your side, right? So imagine the Nathan communicating at that time. What were your changes of behavior or how you were communicating at that time in, in the way to, uh, to avoid information overload? I must say, I don't. I mean, my memory would fail me to separate what I did then and what I did later. Okay. So don't hold me to that. Although one thing I certainly did was bring in and use extensively a tool that at the time was called Outside In, whose purpose was to give you a preview of any document, whether in an attachment or anywhere, I think, instantly on your screen without having to open the file, which saved a lot of time. Of course, now it's part of Windows and you know, it's been incorporated. It took them many years to bring it into Windows. So I had to, to use alternatives. So it's like a preview feature of... Yeah. Anything, so something like the, the space And then things evolved further, of course. We did more things, but that was already in the, the next decade, in the 2000s. I remember I had this idea for a tool that would look at your email, and if you made a mistake that, that hurts others, it would do things. I actually had a mock-up of, of a, a kind of pop-up that would say, look here, you idiot. You, you try to reply to all one more time, I'm going to format your hard disk. Mm -hmm. But uh, they didn't allow me to do that. So instead, we developed uh, what we call the Intel Email Effectiveness Coach, which was a tool that did sit in the background and look at, at your mailing behavior. And when you hit send, it would pop up the word dozen different uh, alerts, like you forgot your attachment or, or your subject is empty or you're sending a three-page thing without a management summary or... You know, that kind of things. And uh, that actually was well accepted at Intel and was also done in, in some other companies. You can even buy today from a company called Stance, uh, which is in the Fiji Islands of all places. And they have a commercial product that does the exact same thing. But I did it first. So it's something like an uh, etiquette tool to make sure that you do all the right things. It's a kind of, you know, it's not really an enforcer. It doesn't electrocute your chair or something. Yeah. But it does, uh, I call it the technology-assisted behavior change. You know, you teach them and you ask them to behave nicely, but they could use a little reminder at the right moment. Yeah. Okay. But, and, and that's actually not the first time I hear that there are tools reminding you to do something, right? Even Even now in any new software you install, uh, there are these little pop-ups or little clouds coming like, did you know that or did you check this and so on and so on. But I'm I'm wondering what do you think about the need of this, right? Why, you know, when many, many years ago, right, the, there was a situation if, you know, that communication could be improved of everybody if we, you know, behave in a certain way or send emails with a certain kind of, uh, in kind of procedure that is optimized for, for it, uh, why there, we are still not there, even if now it's 2018, right? It's more than 20 years past, but I think we are not so far from the beginning. Uh, that's a good question. I would like to, to differentiate between the pop-ups that tell you, did you know, and what I'm talking about, because the pop-up that tells you, did you know, is to help you tries to give you good advice that will make your life better. 
that's an easy sell. Of course, people are forgetful and there's so many features, nobody reads their manual anymore. So yeah, they use those. But what I'm talking about is not about helping the user, it's about helping others. Mm-hmm. It's in my interest as a user to write my messages in the fastest way and in the most sloppy way so I don't waste my time on it, right? Then somebody else will waste time trying to figure out what I wrote. So to advise me or to force me to write a clear message mm-hmm. means I need to invest more time for others. It's altruistic. And to teach people how to use the application faster, that's egotistic. That's in their interest. Therefore, the altruistic part is a much harder sell. And in fact, it's uh, the general rule that if you want to make any change to people's behavior that will make them more altruistic, it has to come from the top of the organization. And my view of that has always been that this is a game's theory thing. It's like a prisoner's dilemma or a, a tragedy of the commons. Mm-hmm. But everybody would gain if everybody put more effort into writing good messages, but nobody wants to be the first one to cut back because they want to be noticed because they think it's in their interest. Try to go to somebody in a company and tell them that instead of sending a weekly report every week, they should send only every two weeks. They won't do it. They want to be noticed. Unless the boss at the very top says, if you send it every week, I'm going to fire you. Then it will happen. So all these programs, like the Your Time program I mentioned, there was a reason why we started it at the top from the, actually from the CEO of the corporation. So people understand this is for real and it's in their interest to comply. Mm-hmm. But but it's a sad story. If if I always need the boss to to tell me how I behave, otherwise I keep going, that means that I, you know, it looks like you, you don't care about your peers, and also you don't care about, uh, you know, improving one of the that is that the main factors of our daily job, particularly in you know the white collar job like in an office. We mostly communicate. We don't work in terms of doing stuff. We just communicate with other people. A vast majority of employees are just taking data and giving data to somebody and or collecting data and giving data to somebody else. And this kind of exchange mostly is happening through emails, let's say. Uh, if we don't do it properly, we, you know, we, we don't do the work properly overall, right? So let me re-articulate what you just said. You're saying it's a sad world and people are imperfect. Wow, that's big news. Take a newspaper and tell me about no, how it is. Okay. Hey, this is human nature. As they say, you know, we are weak, we are sinners and so on, right? But at least people try to improve and some people try to help them improve. So we do it. No, but I, I'm just surprised that it's uh, it's not coming organic, right? It's some very normal thing, right? So, well, the thing is, consider a, a corporation, a modern company, is a meritocracy, right? Yeah. So if I get promoted, you don't get promoted. There's a limited uh, pie, sort of, or at least people sense it that way. Mm-hmm. And this whole thing about the, the the tragedy of the commons and and all those game theory things involve zero-sum games. It's a zero-sum game. For people to believe that it's in their interest to be nice to others, management has to be really superb. I mean, they have to instill a culture in the company where people feel it's safe to experiment, it's safe to fail, it's safe to, to waste their time helping others for the good of the group, and so on. Some companies are like that. It's not too common. 
and it's a challenge. And managers also are people, and, and not all of them uh, want to or know how to do this. And there are parts in the world of the world where it's the standard that if you try something and build, you should be punished directly. It's part of the company culture. It depends on which country you're coming from. But mm -hmm. I've seen that in the world. So we have to live with the world we were given and try to improve it. So it, it, anyway, what we, we understand is information overload reduction is an altruistic action, right? We should start altruistically to think about others in order to reduce an overload of information for, for ourselves as well. Well, half of it. There's two parts. The altruistic part helps the organization a lot, but the selfish part is if you still learn how to use Outlook faster or if you teach yourself not to read every piece mm -hmm. of crap that comes into your inbox, then you will be more efficient and, and that's also good for the company. So it's these two components, the one where me and my computer and the one where what I send to others. Ideally, you want to do both. And ideally, you also want to do meeting culture because meeting culture and email culture work hand in hand. They feed each other, actually, meeting overload and, and email overload. Mm -hmm. So a smart company will have a, a kind of project to improve overall communication culture in the company. And there's a lot to be done there. Do you have any um, story that where you, you know, you prove to be more successful with your own communication style compared to maybe your peers or colleagues around you that instead were not following the good, good practice? Well, certainly the best to method I know for writing an effective email, which I don't use always, but I use it sometimes, uh, depending on the context, is the, the, the one with the W's, you know, where you write a short message that, that has sections titled what, when, why, mm -hmm. one or two lines each, and, and in them you say exactly what the message is about, so the recipient can read it like in, in two seconds, he knows whether it's good or bad, whether it's necessary to read it or not, and people react. To that kind of messaging, people tend to react a lot more than to others because it grabs their attention. Even mm -hmm. the fact that you thought about them to make the message more effective for them makes them feel different about it. So that's very recommended. And it also goes to things like, so if, if you need to attach, uh, say, a presentation to such a mail, you always will say which slides are the ones that you want the person to read instead of standing presentation with 80 slides and say here's an interesting presentation about the subject mm -hmm. and again, people react to that if they see that you put thought into it then that's a strong influence and, and this is cross platform right doesn't have to be it's not only email practices for any any kind of channel you're using uh, even if you're talking on the phone it's important to state the simple the, the most clear thing you want from that conversation well, there is that, but email is different from most of those channels. In, on the phone, the other person can tell you to shut up or direct your conversation. Okay. While on, on all the chat channels, you know, WhatsApp and, and Facebook and mm -hmm. so on, it's so difficult to type fast on those channels that you can't make a very long message even if you try. So, but email is where you can really ramble and ramble for pages and pages. Yeah. Right? I mean, I receive emails of like when I print them out, there are six pages. So the, the, the difference is that you have more time to craft the message so that 
you it can lead in a much more in clarity or you, you, you require more time to, to process it and understand and respond. Of course, yeah. People say that email is a bad channel for emotional things, for example, right? Because mm-hmm. well, the truth is if I have to write an email that, that is in any way emotional or personal, I write it, I spend a lot of time writing it, then I save it, then I come the next day and I read it again and I change it again. And if it becomes perfect, then I send it. And mm-hmm. when you invest in an email like that, it's almost as good as face-to-face. Okay. It takes a lot of effort. Yeah, and time. Uh, what, what is the, uh, the, the use case or the use cases when you, it's good to use email? Instead, are there some use cases that are where you actually shouldn't use it? Or do you have any of this distinction? Well, you shouldn't use it if you try to communicate with Lelit and Zani. Right? No, on top of this reason. <laughs> uh, I would say, let me remind you of the original premise of email. Email is store and forward. Email is you send it and it waits for somebody to come and read it. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it ideal for cross-time zone communication, right? You send, originally the idea was from here, you send a message to America at the end of the day. In the next morning, you come and you have the answer. Mm-hmm. That's great, right? You don't have to stay up in the middle of the night to try to telephone somebody. And that was the concept, that it would accumulate in a queue, in an inbox, and wait for you so you can read it when you have time to read it. Now, the reality, and there's some research that people did, actually, they put software on machines to see what people do with their email, mm-hmm. and 70% of emails were found that they are opened within six seconds of arriving. So what they did is they took this great story forward thing, and they made it into a synchronous tool like, like text messaging or WhatsApp, yeah. which is disastrous because its whole advantage is when you wanted to wait for someone to read it when they have the time. And people completely forgot that. that that's a tragedy, that people are not using email the way it was supposed to be used. I think that is now the the extreme of this is just using the subject for small tweets of conversation. And oh, we've had that. You, you nobody, nothing. It's no attachment. Just subject and and two. But what you do so then you add EOM at the end of it to say end of message. Yeah, yeah. No, not to open the message. So then what people do is they hit reply, and so they fill in the the body of the reply, but it still says EOM. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So that abuses the thing. But yeah, this is a working method and I use it. And it's it's mostly because that's uh, to establish a new, more reasonable tool for that kind of communication would require perhaps too much effort for the whole team, right? Uh, in order to instead use a, a chat, right? Or a group chat that would be perhaps more uh, appropriate tool for this kind of real-time communication, it would need too much effort from everybody to learn to use the new tool and go everybody there, right? Um, or And what, what do you think about it? Is there instead a successful story you have that shows that it's not an impossible thing to do? Well, the thing, this goes back exactly to what we said before. You need the top manager of the group to say, you must do this or else, or I will not read any messages by email, only on the chat group thingy, and then it will work, right? Mm-hmm. No, managers have some superhuman powers. Uh, other than that, I must say there was one case when this worked extremely well for a group, 
this was at some point I started with another guy at Intel, a group called the Virtual Collaboration Research Team, mm-hmm. which was a team that, that we, we actually invented it. I mean, nobody told us to, but we wanted to have a team that will look at the future of team collaboration, whether it will be video. I mean, this was some years ago. So it's not obvious what it will be. And our, our notion was that virtual collaboration is going to be a great thing in the near future, and Intel wants to be knowledgeable about it in many ways. So we asked for volunteers from various parts of Intel, from various countries, and we set up this team that for, for quite a long time, I forget a year or two years, met like every week or two for a meeting to discuss things, and we actually invented some new ideas. It was pretty cool. But we needed a tool for the team to collaborate. And we used something, I think it was called eRoom at the time, which was a very early group space kind of application. And uh, it worked. But the reason it worked is the team was extremely motivated to explore team collaboration, right? We were about, that was our subject. And uh, we worked so well with this tool, we even had parties on the tool, you know, like group events with games and everything. We, We developed a methodology for how to run a team event virtually with prizes and, and it was was a, a group all chat. All it was 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 like SharePoint and the group chat. So yeah. you could change files, you could uh, and it also we had a methodology where people would actually do their job. So if you want people between meetings to review something and, and provide comments, so it's one thing to say they must do it and put the comments on the group space. But you need for them to do it, to actually be motivated enough to do it, which mm-hmm. can be done with a carrot or with a stick. In this case, we definitely had the carrot because people were motivated to use it. So that showed me that it can be done. That said, in a real company, you know, in real situations that aren't so specific, it depends on the team and how motivated they are and how much they like working together and what their boss says and so on. And ideally, You want people to be able to use these tools so well that they can cut back on what we call ouch meetings. And an ouch meeting is a meeting where you have somebody from America, somebody from Europe, and somebody from East Asia, right? So mm-hmm. no matter what you do, somebody has to be up in the middle of the night, right? Yeah. There's no solution to that. So those are pretty bad meetings, especially if it's a group that meets like every week, you know, it's, it's pretty painful for somebody. Uh, so... What we worked on in that collaboration team is we wanted to invent a way where you could say to people, look, guys, instead of having to, to come to these in, inconvenient meetings every week, we will only have a meeting every three weeks. The other two times, you will dedicate to the work of the group, and we will have a tool that will allow us to transfer the documents that you need to review and, and things mm-hmm. you need to comment on and so on, and you will promise to put in that scheduled time on your calendar and do it so that you don't come to the meeting every three weeks and find out that you didn't do anything or that you mm-hmm. did it in the last 10 minutes. And we actually invented a tool which we patented at some point, uh, which would organize all that work. So it would work with people's calendars and make sure everything is done, happening on time and the team leader gets reports of who did what, when, and so on in order to make this work better. Mm-hmm. So that's a good direction you want to go into where the virtual space still allows you to collaborate even if you're not present synchronously all the time. And I think in the last years, there are 
several tools that are very similar to what you described. There is you know, Slack, Watson Workspace, Asana, Bootcamp, uh, WebEx Teams, and so on. So there are a lot of similar tools where you have a group chat, people can talk, share files in the same area, and keep chatting, right? And Not the same thing at all. You say people can talk. I want people to be forced to talk. So in my, what I want in those tools is this. When the time comes, when I said I would work on this stuff, a pop-up would come on my screen and say, this is the time that you have to work on this stuff. And okay. if you don't, the team leader gets a message saying, this guy's not doing his job. Mm -hmm. For example, you know, there's a lot of features you can consider, but the main thing is to facilitate people, not just delaying things to the last moment. You okay. need to have a very rigid system around that. Just like in a real meeting, if you don't show up, people see that you didn't show up. It's more like a mom tool at this point, like the, that she's telling you, you should do it, otherwise I punish you. Well, there is, well, you may or may not punish them, but there's also the workflow. So if I, I did comment oh, yeah. on the document, now it sends the document to the next guy who should comment and say, this is the document, this guy already did it, you have to do it by tomorrow and send it to the third guy, and so on. So. It's an infrastructure about this whole thing. The purpose is it's exactly like being in a meeting, except everybody comes at a different time. But the rest of it is like they're all in the same meeting. Okay. Think about it. I mean, it's, a, it's a, an interesting and intriguing concept. It's an intriguing, I, I still believe that people, I trust people in general that are able to uh, learn the priorities and learn the responsibility, right? That is actually behind everything. So if I'm responsible, then I, I will do the things, uh, even if I don't have the big mom tool that is telling me that I should do in that particular time, right? I, I, and sometimes, of course, I, I, I could forget. It can happen sometimes, right? But because humanity works like that, but the majority of time I will commit on it because that's, that's how I, I am an employee and I feel responsible. So, uh, and I know that tools can, can do this job for me and I can rely, but it's much better if I don't have the tool because one day the tool doesn't work and then nobody's going to do anything because the tool didn't tell me. And it's so, and particularly in a world where artificial intelligence is coming in, at one point we will become slave of our own creation if we are going on in this way instead of, uh, still be on you know the control side i would say wow yeah that brings us to an interesting domain by the way i don't want to pour cold water on your optimism and love of mankind uh, absolutely I, I i like people and so on but they have their weaknesses now if you are doing what you just said and you ever leave ibm and i ever ever have my own great corporation which i doubt then i will hire you instantly with that attitude but but that's actually how it should be for everyone, right? That's the first thing when you you you, you even if you consider a normal thing, you still get money for the work you do if you're working in a corporate, right? So it's time exchange for money, and during this time you have certain tasks to do. If you need somebody to remind you to do those things, you're paid for. It's a bit weird. Well, remember one thing: the the problem we see is that. In most companies, people get a lot more work than they can possibly ever do. For instance, email. They get, awesome. get 300 messages a day. And even if, let's say, a third of them are completely useless and you just delete them, 
more than a third, I would say, but yeah, that's. Uh, I am. I surveyed it in many companies between thirty and thirty-five percent. Useless uh, people report, uh, totally useless. You know, the ones that nobody would mind if they disappear. Mm -hmm. But so you still have two hundred messages, right? And let's say, and let me quote you a, a CIO that once said it to me. He said to me, "My problem isn't the two hundred messages that I don't really need to do anything about." He says, "I can get rid of those in uh, maybe half an hour." He says, at the end of that, I have 40 messages each day that require me to take some action or make some decision to think about them. And there is no way I can do that in one day, think and make quality decisions on 40 different matters. So it's hopeless, he says. That's the real problem. Now, if he's in that situation, you can't blame him for not doing all of it because it's impossible. And he has to make his priorities more wisely or less wisely. But assuming all the 40 senders are good people and they, they had need of his time, then many of them will be disappointed. Mm -hmm. I can't say it's because he's irresponsible or evil or, or anything. It's because his boss didn't give him enough people working with him to, to split the job between them. Right? In Intel, we had this system called two in a box for senior managers. So why do you need two managers in the same box? Because there's more work than one person can do. But most people don't have that luxury, and they also don't have the luxury of having an admin or TA to, to take the work off their hands unless they're very senior. So they have to, to do their own priorities, which is a big shortcoming in corporate culture, by the way. In, in Hebrew, we had an expression of it, uh, which we, we called gum vigum, which mm -hmm. means uh, this and also this, right? Meaning if you go to your boss and you say, I have these two tasks that I have to do today, and each of them will take a full day. So tell me which of them do you want me to do? And he says, you do this and also that. The moment the employee hears that, a little light goes on in their brain and says, this manager is not serious and doesn't care what I do. And then they do what they can to survive, which is not necessarily the right priority and doesn't lead to good results. It's you know, a cynical way that many companies manage their people because they feel if they pressure them more, they'll get more results. And when you have a company like that, the email overload and all these things are, are just a side effect, basically. It's just, yeah, so, so let's say that you, you necessarily have to overload because you have no time to think about how you craft your messages, how you are behave. It's just you keep doing the, the fast thing you can in order to potentially reply to them all, to, to all the messages. Uh, we need a poo book. I, I have one, yes. Okay. So, well, you have the Walt Disney one or the original one? Uh, I have, uh, I think I have the original one. Um, so and, the first picture uh, in but the I saw many times because my, my kids right, like it. So I, I saw many times the Walt Disney uh, first episode. Based on the book. Winnie the Pooh, the first picture in the book, uh, I remember the text says something like, here comes Winnie the Pooh going down the stairs following Christopher Robin. Mm -hmm. Bump, 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 right? Because he drags him by the, the leg and he bumps his head on the stairs. And it says, sometimes uh, the, the bear thinks that there must be a better way to come down the stairs if only he could stop bumping his head and think about it. That's just what you said about the email. And uh, <laughs> and so do we find wisdom also in Winnie the Pooh at this point. That, that, that's interesting. Very cool book. I it's say. a cool book, yeah. It's a, it's a very cool book. I, yeah. It's not only for kids. I would say you, everyone should, should take a look at it and read uh, to, to see the fantasy and how the, the story is crafted. That's uh, an interesting way to see 
the whole information overload. So it, it's not. Um, so from from the first thing we said in this podcast is uh, part of it is due to the not only that email wasn't designed for this kind of way we are using it now, right? Mm-hmm. And part of it is because uh, you know people didn't know how to to use it, right? So we we needed first probably to you know design email and another tool then tell everybody you need this you need to do these things use this you need to do these other things use this instead we just went wild and experimented and that's how it happened with the this technological revolution but now we come out with the situation where it's not even the tool but it's more like that the fact that i have too many things to do and the work is so stressful and pushing people to execute and be productive that is causing um, an overload as a necessity for everybody to survive. Something like, you know, I need to breathe, so I will try to uh, take all the oxygen I can instead of, uh, you know, breathe slowly so that everybody can have equal amount. That is true. Also, it's the fact that what email does today is it gives everybody in in your company access to your task list, your Mm -hmm. to-do list, right? Anyone wants you to do something, they just send you an email and you're going to do it, probably. Now, it used to be when I was younger, there was management by objectives, which is you sat with your manager at the beginning of each quarter and made the list of everything you're going to do that quarter with dates mm-hmm. and everything, and you put it on your cubicle wall. And then if, if somebody comes and wants me to do something else, they have to go to my boss and negotiate because they have to take something out of the list and put their thing in. Of course. So they think about it. Today, they just send me an email. If they're lucky, I'll do it. If they're not lucky, they'll send the email to 50 people and some sucker will come up. So that's... <laughs> this is this is not your to-do list. This is the, the email. Then it's, it's the, to, the to-do list of everybody or the people want from you, but it's not yours. It's, who, it's the first to-do list. It's the external one. Work in my to-do list on what they need to do to get their business yeah. accomplished. In fact, it's like a virus that goes into a cell and subverts the, the mechanism of the cell to generate more viruses to the interest of the virus. That's mm-hmm. how it works. First time I thought of that, but actually, yeah, it's, it's probably a good analogy. And that's tragic because you don't plan work anymore at all. And to have a large organization operate where everybody's doing not just what they please, but what everybody else pleases mm-hmm. is guaranteed to be less efficient than if people get together like I said at the beginning, and, and think and figure out the priorities and who will do what. And by the way, it was a lot more fun then. Somebody told me, another old timer told me, it used to be fun to come to work. You came to work, you did your correspondence, which came in brown envelopes for maybe half an hour. And then the rest of the day, you actually created, you thought, you wrote, you, you solved problems, you know, you developed products, you did fun things. And then at five or six or seven, you know, of course, you went home because you became hungry. And when you were at home, there was no work at all. Because yeah. There was no connectivity. So you saw to your family and, and children and so on. So work used to be a lot more pleasant back in the day. Today, we do great things. It's very interesting, but we are always stressed. And that's a bad thing. Except if you don't use emails, right? Then, then, so then it, it, yeah, it pleasant again. You. So are you finding you're much less stressed than the people around you at IBM? I, 
it's very hard to compare right i mean how how can i from what's you know, purpose and from actually from what position i can say yeah i'm less stressed than generally folks right but it's true that um the fact that you don't use uh, one channel or, or it's not that you don't use it fully because i i still necessarily have to use the inbox because many people use just that channel mostly everybody right so from time to time during the day maybe once or twice a day i just give a glance to the to the inbox and see what is there uh, but mostly the fact that you don't look at it you see that requests are coming more personally so either through chat or through phone call somebody schedules a meeting um, and this brings much more human dimension because you talk no so Lele, i i need this from you instead of receiving a long mail with whatever task and in that moment i see that you solve many more things than if you would do it through email because it's much more direct it's personal you can brainstorm in that situation and you have also the possibility to have a conversation so i prefer that instead of sending receiving an email I just get a, a chat a coffee chat or a get to your desk or have a video chat right so uh, that brings more into people's side so I, I meet a lot of people every day for doing exactly the same thing i was supposed to do instead of staying just behind my laptop and and typing and typing and reading and reading so i find it less stressful and more pleasant overall in general when i i recognize there is the stress is when you get um that uh, mail without follow up with uh, some kind of uh, not emotional intelligence uh, on on the background to uh, understand also the reaction from the other so there is kind of um uh, you know, kind of you know stress in the lines and that is uh, that is unpleasant right when you have to do something where there is little time uh, thought about uh, the message you people were sending to you like uh, simple things uh, like a forward of a long history uh did you do that that's the easiest thing right and and this is a weird way to communicate Right. because it it implies the fact that you don't know what i did that there is a long string of something so that you were supposed to do something and you didn't take a look at it that uh, you didn't you didn't so it's already you that you are in a fault and all of this is maybe without the opportunity to do, to have given explanation in that moment personally to show how instead you are completely in goodwill and you maybe are taking care of that particular thing or it's completely misunderstood. So there are a lot of things behind, but one message, one text, you know, doesn't give you justice in this. That's that's what is causing stress, I think, most of the time. And if you're away from that, and you, you can... I once had an idea that what you should simply do is hire two contractors that will bombard each other with email for you. And then you could just have uh, some rest. Yes. It looks like soon we're going to have two AI chatbots doing that, which is uh, well, this whole discussion. Maybe it has a limited time before it expires because, you know, in, in 15 years, who knows what AI will do to our communication. But uh, still, still, it's interesting that you, you, you spoke in 1994 in the same way as in 2000. So it's been more than 20 years where I would say it's kind of... Um, similar pattern even if we have many more tools right and many more solutions 
Um, do, do you think, uh, that, that's a question for you actually, do you see a, a significant change in the environment or we are pretty much at the same level? Well, I would say if we're at the same level, that's a great achievement because normally we would expect the level of stress and the overload to, to go up. Mm -hmm. uh, we certainly have a problem. I mean, like before, we talked to people about even just email and they, they will groan and pull their hair out and so on. So that hasn't changed. Um, we do have a lot more solutions, though. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I had this solution guide that I put together uh, three or four years ago with all the solutions I knew to information overload, which, by the way, uh, people are welcome to download. It's a free download on my website. Mm -hmm. And it, it has, like, uh, it, it, this edition had uh, over 160 solutions in it. But the interesting thing is I actually did it in two, two installments. First, I did a list of all the solutions in 2011 that they didn't publish externally. And then I upgraded it and published it in 2014. So we can see how the number of solutions went up from one to the other. And it went up by 44% the, the data here on my screen. And what went up most is uh, software solutions. And uh, of those, what went up most wasn't more classifiers to tell you which part of your inbox is the important messages. There were a lot more diversity in the types of solutions that came out. So that was interesting to see mm -hmm. how the solution vendors have matured and have started to churn out new ideas and, and new directions for solution. So at least today we have a lot more to choose from in terms of solutions to information overload. And of course, uh, more recently, we have uh, more and more AI involved in this, mm -hmm. which is uh, certainly interesting to see. I mean, like in, in iWork, we have on our, our team a representative of Nomail, which is a company that, that uses AI to actually tell you which, uh, let's say, three messages of the 300 you just received is the ones you want to read right now, because it knows what you're doing now and where you're going. And, what meetings you will be in and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, in a sense, it's powerful AI, even though it isn't like a, a robot like we see in the science fiction movies. It's just a specific agent that does a specific role. But uh, these tools do a pretty good job. It's interesting to see. So like eventually the, the AI will be overloaded while we will be without it. Yeah. Well, the AI doesn't care. Remember, yeah. take big data. All these tools that use big data, Know, like Watson and so on, they, they don't complain. The more data, the better they're happy. Yeah, of course. No, that, that's, so that's not the, the breakfast. And they get out of it much more than we would. We, if we had all the big data, we would, you know, kill ourselves trying to, to pare it down to little data. What they do instead is they use the big data to extract correlations that we never dreamed about mm -hmm. and to do things that are completely amazing and completely scary, as you know. So, that's a whole new paradigm of AI, the use of big data to extract stuff that we don't know how the computer even arrives yeah. at. And you will never have all the time to, to see it all in a big Excel file and, you know. Uh, you wouldn't see them and me. you wouldn't know where to look. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. This is all about the, the neural networks part of it, yeah. probably. But neural networks have been working with these in the 90s. And even then, they did things that we had no idea how they do them. And that's some pretty amazing things. And today, of course, they are infinitely more powerful. And they can just, you know, look and say, yeah, this guy is probably going to, to, to 
die in, in so many years from this disease based on, on the shape of his ears or something because they have the correlations out of a million other people that they have the data about. Yeah, and the cool thing is probably that uh, what you know when I deal with uh, when I w- I worked in finance for like six years, and the majority of time you spend in dealing with data is not only using it, but is cleaning it up. Like so, understanding that you know there is a cell that is text instead it should be number, a cell that is, has too many spaces, a cell that is all joint, and you need to to divide it by a comma and so on and so on. So a lot of time is spending not only. It's in cleaning up and making sure that the data is correct before starting analyzing it. And probably that's where AI is is a breakthrough because it's able to understand how to clean it without you spending you know hours and hours and hours of time to clean up for a lot of lines. And that's that's where the change is going to come. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, you should see that there's this uh, lecture that's on, on YouTube from Yuval Noah Harari. This is the guy... <laughs> that wrote the Sapiens book. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he talks about the, the future of humanity and, and data and so on. And uh, I love this quote from him. He says, uh, organisms are algorithms and we are beginning to know how to hack them. And there's some very interesting uh, repercussions to that. Mm-hmm. Definitely organisms are certainly a lot of data. Our DNA is data and our behavior generates data and so on. And yes, uh, people are beginning to hack all of that. So, recommended lecture, I must say. Oh, good. I, I read both books, but uh, this lecture I haven't heard. So, that's interesting. Yeah, well, the first book is great. The second book uh, maybe isn't as, as good a read, but uh, the guy is smart. Yeah. But both are interesting and kind of uh, realistic. Even the second with the... Models is quite interesting, I would say. Oh, it's interesting. It talks about, and I, I kind of believed uh, how the future could be and uh, how AI could start. You know, we, we could, because from information intelligence and how the, the only difference so far is that we are conscious, right? And you never know uh, if an, a machine will be able to be conscious. And I think that nobody is able to really answer to this question for the moment. So. There is a lot to discover and a lot of to, to hear from. No, you don't know if I'm conscious. Come on. No, this exactly is- right, oh. and th- that is where where we say you know we, we said you know if we will uh, flood uh, an AI with information overload, they will be overloaded. You never know if you will they will be pissed about it one day or not. Uh-huh. It might come that time, right? They will also join iorg with us. And uh, and be part of it, uh, but actually, I would like to go to to IORG and and take me when when IORG was born, right? When, so from 1994, when how, how much time did it pass since you you created this organization? So what happened? And I'm trying to figure out the timeline, and I'm not sure I remember the exact time. But what happened at some point, like maybe in 2000? five or something like that is mm-hmm. I was visiting a Microsoft research in Redmond uh, because I wanted to meet the people that developed Outlook and, and you know talk to them about it and, and see some of the great things they're doing there. And I was talking to a manager in that group and uh, as we were talking we saw that we have a lot of common interests and I, I think it, actually I, I came up with the idea. I told her, why don't we do a workshop where we pull in a bunch of people that are at the forefront of this field of how to deal with the overload. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and uh, just do a workshop. And she said, sure, let's host it here in Redmond. So we had something we called the Infomania Workshop, which uh, to which we brought people from academia and from corporations and, and consultants and, and analysts. So really we had maybe 20 people from different organizations, from mm-hmm. Intel, Microsoft, and, and uh, some universities and so on. And uh, we had a great time for two days, came up with a lot of insights. And then that led me and uh, this manager for Microsoft, who was Mary Cherwinski, and, and Professor Shizap Raffaelli from Haifa University. He said, let's uh, make this into a permanent uh, organization, basically a group and continue meeting. And then the lawyers at Intel said, yeah, but you have to make it a formal nonprofit. Yeah. Lawyers think like that. They say, no, if you're not a, a formal organization, then you're liable personally for if you give bad advice and somebody sued you or something. Of course. Okay. So I said, fine. The, the, actually, Intel uh, took care of the details for, for incorporating us in the state of Oregon as a nonprofit. And we launched in 2008, I think, as the Information Overload Research Group. And uh, we had a big event launching it in New York City. And it made the news, so all the big newspapers wrote about it. We had a good time. Uh, and uh, that was the beginning of IROC. And the, the idea that, that guides me in it all along is the same idea of bringing in academics and corporate people and analysts and so on. So we have a representation from everybody. We bring in also solution vendors, big ones and, and startups. So everybody can, can kind of fertilize the thinking of everybody else with their ideas. So the main idea was to bring people together, but still uh, not only to talk about, but to bring to bring forward some solutions about information overload. Do, do, is it the only uh, organization that is somehow non-profit and bringing up this this topic, or the, are there other organizations we are around the world? I know that we are the only one out there. Yeah. Why? If it's such a big problem of many people, right? And I'm, I'm always wondering why. Why is the only one? Like why? It is not uh, universally considered, you know, th- because part of it is there are several companies that are um, providing solutions. We discussed about some of them, right? That are providing solutions that to tackle information overload, reduce it, to make sure that we communicate better and so on. But these are all profit-driven companies that are using basically the in, in, not perfect human beings and not their bad behaviors to to earn something right to make them better but non-profit is is only one that is IOR. so and instead it should be much more altruistic to say okay we we should help each other much more right what what do you think um well for one thing maybe people are too busy bumping their head on the stairs right so they have the time to think about creating such organizations i was at intel i was at the a somewhat unusual career I had there. I mean, I really always invented my own work and my jobs, and uh, yeah. I was allowed to do that. So I could afford to, to invent new ideas like that. There was an even uh, more extreme case. At some point, I, I started something called itsharenet.org, which was a website dedicated to having IT people from different companies exchange solutions that they develop in house. Okay. And uh, you'd think, why not, right? I mean, they're not the main product of the company. They're just, they have better ways of managing IT or, or training people or whatever. It took me like a year of negotiating. I wanted to have 
uh, in the end, we had eight founding companies to this, which was companies in a couple of universities. Getting these companies to agree to, to even talk to each other, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, like if you write a letter to somebody in another company, in jumps a lawyer and says you can't read the letter because it exposes you to knowing what's in it and who knows what will happen. So, and I must say to my credit that I managed to get eight large organizations to sign on the terms of incorporation of this site and agree that we will share stuff openly, like on an open source basis with each other and with the world. And it worked for, for a number of years we had this running, but the effort to get it running was a completely incredible, difficult task because companies are so used to looking inside and not outside mm -hmm. and are so suspicious of each other. Also the solution vendors, the little ones, they're competing with each other in a sense. Why would they want to cooperate? And I can tell you why they should, but their initial responses were busy. We, we are strapped for resources. Why should we think about being altruistic to other solution vendors? Uh, so again, it becomes the, the usual difficulty of getting people to collaborate sensibly. And it can be done, but it takes a lot of work. So it seems like there are maybe, there, perhaps there are initiatives to improve the communication or so, you know, reduce information overload inside some corporations and, but they are not shared externally, right? So that only within their firewalls, there are oh, some people who are... I know that because when I was at Intel, I was communicating with those people. What happened is somebody leaked to Fast Company magazine what I was doing. Uh, about improving uh, the overload at Intel. Mm -hmm. And uh, somebody even copied that into an in-flight magazine of one of the American airlines. So everybody heard about it. And I had like a hundred organizations con contact me to discuss this. And some of them were doing good stuff. In fact, that's where I got the names to bring into my, my original uh, workshop. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there were companies doing great things. And there were companies doing the same things we were doing. And we collaborated and exchanged information about those things and, and developed things together. So there's a lot going on out there. It's just difficult to break through the barriers that companies uh, build around themselves. What is the best memory you have about IORG, the best achievement so far? I would say I like the face-to-face the -face conferences we had. We had the three face-to-face -face conferences where the people that really care about this came. Uh, these days it's difficult. Travel is, is more difficult for people to commit to, so we are doing uh, virtual events. But uh, when we could still do them face-to-face, -face, I love that. Suddenly you get together with the people and there's still no, no solution to the, the advantage of getting people together if they don't actually come into the same uh, room. Where, where was it? We had, well, we had our founding... Uh, event in New York City, and we had two events in San Francisco. And um, what, how, 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 describe me one of these, how, how, how they were organized, or what was well, there? There were one-day events, as informal as we could get it. It was really about getting people with things in the same space. Mm -hmm. We had some lectures, we had a keynote, and we had a lot of work around tables, you know, in teams trying to figure out various subjects or questions you put up. And of course, as a result, people get to know each other and they stay in touch. So it's the networking. But then in any event, it's always the networking and the coffee breaks. 
some of my best ideas came to me when I was doing travel to, to various conferences or, or other things outside the country. And you mm -hmm. meet people and a chance remark starts you doing like the, the reason I Intel agreed to start a one day a week telecommuting program, which was my doing, and which took me a year of very hard work to, to actually characterize it and get management to accept it. But the, the reason we adopted that strategy is because I was in a conference in New Orleans and I was talking during a coffee break to this engineer from another company. And he says, our boss forces us to work from home one day a week. Now that seemed strange. I mean, allowing it is one thing, forcing it is another. So I said, why does he force you to work from home one day a week? He said, we asked him, he says, I want you guys to work. So that clicked for me, the realization that when you're alone at home, there's types of work that you can only do then. And then I started this whole program and so on. But if I hadn't gone to that conference, nobody would be telecommuting until to this day. Maybe. And uh, so for other things too. So I went to my boss and I said, hey, why send me to, to travel to America? Send me to a lot here on the Red Sea, which is a very nice resort and put me in a hotel there and I'll have all my great ideas there. But of course it doesn't work that way. Throughout this year, how do you um, perceive the evolution of IORG? And uh, where are we, are we heading now? Uh, that's an interesting question. It's always a kind of a bumpy ride with our, because things, are, we have a small steering team and things happen based on what members of the team have ideas and members come and go. So for instance, this year we had IBM uh, assert the presence, right? We basically made a, a call for, for ideas for companies that want to engage in, and a number of guys from IBM, including yourself, became engaged and because we are so small just the fact that you are a video guy we are thinking a lot more about videos and now now we have a new member that is from the the online learning discipline we're thinking of working with her to bring up uh, online courses right why not yeah yeah and, and so on so it it's really we're small enough that we're not like a big ship that makes a straight course we are bumping this way and that like a small boat, but it's fun. And it's good to be doing new things all the time. So, so soon there perhaps there's gonna be a course maybe on lynda.com or on YouTube about how hints and tips about information overload and how to avoid it. And uh, that is uh, the intent actually is to try and develop such a thing. This is, we have uh, Laura Riddle from the University of Arkansas. Mm -hmm is in charge of all their, their operation of online courses mm -hmm. and uh, we hope to work with her to adopt this new discipline to what sure, we do. Sure. So far we only have podcasts and webcasts but we don't have actual you know online courses which yeah, is a whole different story and an important thing in today's world certainly. But, but still the the main idea of IORG is the network so if people are coming or would like to take part in it everybody's always welcome to you know uh, to, to share and be part of it right from anywhere any company yeah that's the way things happen when people start talking to each other great stuff happens that's mm -hmm. my experience i always liked it and i always did the best i could to to make it happen in the corporate environment and that's so difficult i remember when we started our semiconductor plant in jerusalem which was the first such plant in the country in the middle east probably mm -hmm. But there was one little company across the street, literally across the street from our huge plant, 
where they did silicon detectors. So they were also using silicon wafers and ovens, you know, furnaces and so on. Mm -hmm. And for all the years that we were there, only once did somebody cross the street to go to this other building. That was me and my group. I had the idea that we could learn something by going to see what these guys are up to. Mm -hmm. And you know what? The most important thing I, I got from that was seeing that things were different. Just, you know, the, the, even the emergency exit signs were different. The procedures were different. Everything was different. It makes you widen your horizons, right? So potentially the best thing would be to, to change the company where we work from time to time, right? To, to get much more from, from the different environment. Well, I would say unless you are very lucky and they allow you to have a very diverse career inside the company, that's probably a good idea. I mean, generally, I think it's not only the case of I, I, I talk about my career, but I don't I don't think I'm unique. But in this kind of big corporation nowadays, you you have such a small pieces of the process, right? And small kind of areas where you necessarily need to change a lot in order to, to see the big picture eventually. Even if you are a manager, you cannot actually just be a manager of one team. You will be incredibly limited. You need after one, two, three years just to move on and see many. So that actually everybody's encouraged to, to, to rotate and change. So the, it, it will be various. It will be different. And it's, I, don't, I don't know any company that is so unique and so united that every single new department is the same as before. Usually people are changing the environment, right? So if a different, different manager, a completely different experience. But I don't think this is enough overall for to have a complete different picture. You really have to go to a different awesome. place completely. But Also, you can reinvent. I mean, you need to reinvent yourself. That's the basic idea. Yeah. But you can also reinvent yourself in the same company if you invent new departments in the company. Yeah, I did it twice. I invented a completely new activity at Intel that didn't exist before. And you make your own as well. And right? so I made my own. So that helped a little because I've been at Intel 26 years, much too long, I agree. Yeah. On the other hand, be careful because there are people for who it is very good to stay in the exact same responsibility for their whole life. Yeah. And become very deep experts. Like we had at Intel, a guy who was the world's greatest expert on dirt, meaning airborne dust. Okay. In a clean room, you know, this guy could say, if there's this huge clean room and I will move this pencil on the table at one end of the clean room, what will happen to the dirt level at the other end of the clean room? Because he knows the air flows and everything. He was an expert. I mean, the whole world knew he was an expert. The whole world, you know, referred to him and admired him for it. This guy loved it to be just in that one field. And I've known three or four people that are like that, mm. that letting them become what you call, you know, a company fellow with deep expertise in one yeah. area is good for the company and the guy prefers it that way. But most people I think aren't like that. And we have also deep expert in information overload, I would say, right? <laughs> After many years. It, it's so silly that I became an expert on information overload because I'm a physicist. I mean, yeah. how, how come? But that's another thing that happens in your career is if you grab opportunities and, and do what you like inside. But information effectively has a weight, right? Not only the, the storage space, but the air that we use. So it, it, it is in the physical world. So it's no longer a problem, I must say. Used to be we would advise people to send small attachments or not to not send a problem. them and put them on SharePoint because storage was expensive. But, uh, you know, as Andy Grove said, MIPS are going to be free. 
and, and megabytes are going to be free. And he was right. Today, I don't think anybody except for, you know, the finance department has to worry about the cost of actually storing this stuff. Yeah. Right? Because I, remember, stuff, I remember it was the one of the main, when I started back, uh, five years ago with uh, no email, right? One of the main reasons, and people start listening to me, was that the part of the time was spent to archive some emails with big attachment because people didn't have space and didn't get any more the next mail, right? That was like, get out of email so you will be free from this archiving time. In right. one year later, they open up gigabytes and gigabytes of free space. And, you know, then it wasn't anymore a problem to archive. And so you bet memory was expensive once. Today, you know, you, you can put the gigabytes on your keychain. So... No, of course. I, now, now it's so cheap that it's not a problem to overload because it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't it, it's not even a cost, potentially. But at the end, uh, still it is an expense of network, of uh, space wasted for nothing. I don't know, I'm... Uh, uh, I mean, if we have, we will have a planet on top of Earth where we can send all our garbage. It's still a pit to just have a garbage planet. Is that much better to focus on, you know, better recycling and, and so on? Right? But actually, the overload now is not about storage. It's about, of course, our time, which is the most valuable resource. And it's about the fact that you don't find the information you need anymore because there's so much out there and half of it is fake and so on. So we're beginning to worry about those things rather than about storage. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, but this is still uh, something that, that is, storage could be still a reason. Like they're not selling, not sending attachment into an email is still a good thing because now there are kind of systems that allow you to send attachments but they are on the cloud so you don't need to resend it again to, to change it right you can do it directly in the cloud so it, you have an added value because there is a file storage designed for for collaboration instead of just for you know, hitting and sending well it depends on the situation very strongly i mean if you're sending a message to a single person that you want this person to read a single uh, article, mm -hmm. then send it as an attachment. Why bother with the cloud? Maybe the guy's on an airplane that doesn't have Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. right? But if you're sending it to a group of people that not all of them need to read it, then absolutely put it in the cloud. So you save hassle yeah. for the people that don't need it. And there are many other situations. And for every situation, there is an optimal way of doing it. And nobody thinks about that. But if they did, they would then choose the best tool for, for everything. Mm -hmm. Any Anything you would like iorg to become or to have done and that still you didn't manage to achieve? Well, so far I'm president of iorg and we still don't have an executive jet. That's a problem. Uh. <laughs> if we had one, I would come over to see you in person instead of the Zoom. Yeah, that's the, or a helicopter at least, right? That you... Right, right. Um, Look, the truth is, ideally, we would want to have a huge influence on the, on the world and make information overload go away. Realistically, we're not going to make it go away. All we can do is, is make people more aware of it and, and facilitate the flow of ideas. And mm -hmm. we're trying to do that on a fairly small scale. So yeah. it would perhaps be good if we had a much bigger scale, but that's uh, 
never was the case. I mean, there's a limited number of people that are interested in actually doing this. So we're doing what we can. Well, uh, let me take as well to um, for, uh, let me spend the last minutes of of our conversation on, on what is now, right? The, the the current situation. So we we discussed about the origins. We said that it's not so different nowadays, right? There is even more stress and more overload in certain areas. Uh, how do you see the um, the role that the new uh, kind of communication channels that we have? Um, is the, the, how are they playing with the information overload? So I'm talking about social networks. I'm talking about uh, chat on the mobile, the advent of mobile and devices. So is it are they somehow uh, then respecting the same kind of pattern we you were seeing with emails, or are they helping to tackle information overload? The problem is that the social media are there, right? So they're not going anywhere the immediate effect was to increase overload because there's a lot more stuff coming in. Mm-hmm. And they have the, the attribute that they give you real-time notices, right? So that is a problem. Uh, where it's going, it's a bit early, I would say, in this game. because So we technically were supposed to say that the millennial generation can handle it because, you know, that they mm. grew up into it and so on. Actually, somebody told me recently that the difference is that the millennial generation aren't aware of, of the problem, like a fish isn't aware of water, because the, the older generations had it creep up on us. So we saw it coming. So on one hand, the, the young generation may be uh, really less aware of it being a problem. On the other hand, there is data showing that they, they also suffer. I mean, it also impacts them. And it remains to be seen how they will handle it. Uh, what I would love to see is tools that enable you a lot more control over the flow, the push of information on, on mobile devices and social media. But then we would have to educate people to actually apply those tools and not want to, to be aware of whenever they got something coming in. So you mean instead of, because now already email, like it's not that email is coming into your bedroom and telling you that this is your inbox. It's you that you open the inbox and read it, right? So. You, you you talk about tools that instead are not sending you messages and, until a certain time or some, something like that? Actually, email, the way people use email on mobile is they have it announced every incoming message, right? Many people do that. Huge mistake, mm. even worse than before. And uh, like I say to people, you don't want to have alerts to tell you you've got mail because you know you've got mail every day. Yeah. So why bother? But uh, people... And this makes me think it is going to be more an education and psychology problem. We need to educate people that it's perfectly okay not to be aware of every message that comes in the moment it comes in. That is going to be horrendously difficult. I, I did an experiment once with a group of engineers where we did a pilot on let's not answer emails outside of work hours immediately, only if it's urgent. So all we were saying is if it's not urgent, leave it till tomorrow instead of answering it in the middle of the night. And if it's urgent, do you still, I mean, the, the, the point is, if it's something urgent, I don't expect it to be sent an email. I would expect to have a phone call, right? Or uh, somebody knocking on your door and say, please wake up, we have an urgent. That is very true. But in that case, what we did in that pilot was this. We said, for non-urgent emails, wait for tomorrow. Okay. And don't do them during the weekend and so on. And we had the managers of the group 
come in front of them in a meeting and, and swear to them that this is what they want them to do. And guess what? We, we monitored, of course, the, the pilot. And uh, what happened is there was absolutely zero change. They continued to answer emails around the clock within five minutes. And when we asked them why, they say that's the expectation in our group. Even if it was top-down driven? Yeah. In this case, even though it was top-down driven, they didn't okay. believe their own managers that it's okay. So this, I'm telling you this example to show you how difficult it's going to be to change mm -hmm. this particular behavior. And as a result, people continue to be kind of, you know, forced to look at their, their devices around the clock and they can't stop to think or to concentrate on anything else, which is a problem. Certainly it has to do with, with the, the short attention span we have today and so on. So that's a problem. I don't yet have a good solution to that one, by the way. Why is it a problem? If I, if I am in my kitchen after dinner, my kids are sleeping, and I open my mobile and glance my emails, wh where do you see the problem there? It's not a problem at all there. That's not push. That's pull. You decided that now your kids are asleep. You said you open your device and you look. That's mm -hmm. fine. That's planned. What I'm saying is, what if during dinner or when you're trying to read a bedtime story to your child, something pings up and forces you to pay attention instead of paying attention to your kid, yeah. who is actually much more important? Hey, I had this friend in America that told me he bought Harry Potter in ebook. And I say, why ebook? He says, so I can do email while reading it to my son at bedtime. Excellent. Okay, you tell me that's not a problem. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, ebooks for Harry Potter's are very nice because you have different voices, right? So it generally is not a bad experience. Yeah, thinking but that's audio. Not that, that, but if if it wouldn't be shared that this solution, then I would I would agree. But yeah, that's no. You are you are giving him more credit. It wasn't an an, an audio book. It was just a Kindle book. Right? Ah, Kindle book. Okay, so just to to have it there. You have the email on the same screen. So. That's not a good idea. On the other hand, I'm an optimist, and yeah, the world will manage. People will invent something, and if not, our, our AI overlords will invent something for us, so it's going to be okay, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Do you think there is overload also outside the internet and the data world, like between face-to-face -face interaction or meeting or people talking to each other? Face-to-face well, -face interaction is not happening that much because people are sitting in their rooms looking at their devices, right? Especially teenagers, and the teenagers were actually seeing correlations to suicide rates going up and all sorts of disturbing things. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot, certainly for children, you don't go out to the street and play football between the cars, right, anymore. So it is a problem. As for grown-ups, I don't think there's, uh, there is too much face-to-face -face interaction in, in the workplace, frankly. And people are in meetings all day uh, because there's a meeting overload. Uh, but that's a separate problem. I don't see it as information overload. It's a, it's a big problem, but a different one. So, it so you, you would problem. separate the meeting overload with the information overload? Is a I said they impact problem. each other. Because the meetings are ineffective, they create more emails. And because people don't read their email, people set meetings with them to be able to, to get their response. But... Uh, in meeting overload, like I said, that's a separate podcast, probably. It's a different mm -hmm. thing. But uh, 
so so that's not a problem. You could say there's an overload of, of printed information, but I, I don't think that's the case. Everything is moving online anyway. So what do you think? I mean, do you see an overload of of face-to-face -face interaction in IBM compared to 10 years ago? I think that, I mean, my, my personal opinion is the influence that the this kind of device information technology driven world is um, in giving an hour. So I, I remember there is, if you Google uh, attention span of a human being, you will see that, you know, in 2013 or it was, our attention span was of uh, something like 10 seconds and, and then it went down to six, right? To say that in this last decade, even the human, human attention span lowered down because we have much more distraction with all these devices and all these kind of additional information gems that are coming around us. And so this is somehow impacting as well our thoughts, right? So we, we jump more often between one thought and another, we get more distracted. And it put, could be that part of this distraction is also when we have a face-to-face -face conversation. So instead of really active listening, we get distracted. We think about that mail, that that message, that information. Plus, we have maybe notification at the same time, laptop to observe, uh, whatever wandering stuff, and and even the face-to-face -face interaction then is overloaded with with things instead of just that face-to-face -face interaction. Very interesting that this is happening because you think modern corporations are so focused on making money and and making it efficiently and so on, and then. This area of how people interact, everything is very ineffective. And few companies care enough to do something, mm -hmm. which is uh, funny. Managers realize it. I mean, one manager once told me, nobody's working in this company anymore. They're only doing email. <laughs> Arguably, part of the email is for work, but that's the way it perceives it. And still, it doesn't do much about it, right? Yeah. Tomorrow you create your own company, right? And you you have to hire some employees. So, uh, how would you? What would you do to to make sure they communicate more effectively? Well, the first thing that you would need in a company for that is for there to be real trust between employees and between the employee and management. That they aren't afraid that they will be overlooked. They don't need to send email to be noticed. They don't need to send emails to cover their ass. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody trusts that everybody's doing a good job. Everybody knows they will be rewarded for doing a good job. There's no fear. Now, fear in organizations is, is certainly a very common situation. But if there was no fear, then people could really focus on doing the right thing. And uh, you would have much less overload by result of that immediately. All this stuff I said about, you know, the prisoner's dilemma, it all has to do about trusting each other, right? Mm -hmm. If people do trust each other, which I think goes a lot to the character of the, the founding managers and the, and the managers they hire and the culture they instill around them, uh, if you have a company like that, you're lucky. Very mm. good place to work in. And still, many companies are um, pro, I mean, part of the, the main process around is reporting and reporting on the. Uh, even weekly forecast and latest results, the latest information. I think that all this 
reporting layer by layer, like, you know, uh, let's say seller to manager, manager to second line, second line to third line, third line to general manager, general manager to vice president and so on. It's uh, based on a lack of trust at the same time because you wouldn't need so much time spent in continuous reporting if you would just trust that the job is getting done at the end of the quarter, let's say. Also, it's a matter of empowerment because certainly part of the email and meeting problems comes from disempowered employees. So if somebody needs to make a decision, but he doesn't think that management trusts him, he's going to call a meeting and invite everybody to agree mm -hmm. to the decision in order to be covered. And uh, if there's, again, if, if people don't have the authority to, to make simple purchasing decisions, mm -hmm. uh, you, know, you might need five signatures to, to buy a pencil, right? And each of those signatures generates email and, and has to go around and so on. And people are very fast in perceiving whether they're being trusted or not. In general, I have a theory that, that in the brains of employees, there's a little magnetic gizmo that tells them exactly what management really thinks. I thought I was Q&R manager. So, you know, in quality, if management says, yeah, we want to produce top quality product, but what they really want is to meet your quotas and produce quantity, then the magnetic thing immediately aligns to that and the employees produce quantity. There's no question about it because they are very, they're very good at detecting double talk, you know, and, and hidden meanings. And if the manager doesn't really, really mean that they're willing to, to invest in making quality product and they're willing to maybe trash marginal product and take a, a financial hit for that, employees will immediately respond accordingly. And the same goes to all this information overload thing. You know, if people feel that managers trust them to do a good job, they won't send them reports. If people feel that the managers say they trust them, and, you know, every company has a value of trust and respect for people and so on, right? But if they think that's only on, on, on the poster and not in reality, they are going to cover themselves if they're not idiots. Starting from not knowing how a system works, right? How a tool works to having too much work to be done so that you have to flood the others to not uh, trusting each other, right? So that's... That's actually why we have maybe too much work and why we we misuse tools and we overload each other. So that's, that's a lot. Day, it's all in the psychology, in the culture. Always. Yeah. So eventually uh, there is not going to be an ultimate tool. Or do you believe there is going to be an ultimate tool that will solve all these problems or... Uh, and if this would be the ultimate tool, what, how it should be made? Uh, well, there's not going to be, I think, an ultimate technology tool, although there are many incremental improvements you know, that we're seeing, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But uh, what we really, really need is culture, and culture comes from leadership. So mm -hmm. we need leaders. And uh, the truth is that there's nothing new about that. Yeah. Forget email overload. Look at, at politics. Look at world affairs. Serious leaders that, that inspire and that, that are moral and have good practices to share are important in companies like everywhere else. It's a, there are, but not as many as you would like to, right? It's a question of whether you can also make a change bottom up. Mm -hmm. If your leadership is not like that, 
And the answer is maybe you can make some change from the bottom up. And uh, it's not going to be easy though. And you certainly, the first thing you need to do is enlist the support of at least some senior management so that you're safe trying to make changes. But it's not easy. Yeah, and perhaps like IORG will do some online courses also about leadership uh, at one point. If, if this is actually certainly something that can really reduce a lot of the overload and you know make better lives. Uh, you know, in consequence of this, that, that's, that's definitely useful. In case um, somebody would like to get in touch with you, so where, where can they go? What's the, the best way to, to contact you? Oh, they, they simply have to Google me, Nathan, with an H after the T, Zeldes. Very easy. I'm, I'm all over the, the online world. And everybody is very welcome to, to write me or connect. So pre preferred method of communication? Uh, depending on context, I would say. But uh, actually, email works for me. If it's a really serious email with, with good intent and, and purpose, I'm with fine. With a 3W? The 3W would be nice, yeah. But in any case, uh, yeah, if somebody wants to write me uh, an email and it's not six pages long, uh, definitely do so because then it sits in my queue and I can get to it when I have the time for it. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a good method for me. I'm okay with it. Okay. If somebody doesn't do email, like some people I know, they're welcome to, to use LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever. So thank you so much for for your time and for sharing it has been a very interesting conversation and i i hope we could actually you know keep talking for longer and longer maybe there will be the time where we can uh, still tackle that meeting uh, overload that's very certainly an interesting topic so till then thank you so much nathan and uh, talk to you soon in the next one Thank you for listening to iORG Podcast. More episodes will be coming right on this channel. So thank you for subscribing, share, and enjoy.